Well, if you're new here tonight, then I want to tell you real quick a couple of things, a couple of minutes before I get into the text, that this is, in, a, in many ways, the first week of the rest of our lives at Christ Church. Last week was our launch, our, our grand opening service, and this week we begin a new series uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to spend most of the series in Matthew chapter 5 looking at the Beatitudes, and that's going to take us for a couple of months. And as we begin this, this series, I want to just take a minute right now and talk to us about where, uh, where I believe God is leading us in the coming months. You know, we started this church in August of 2013, and we've been going at a pretty, a pretty fast speed, a breakneck pace ever since then. Uh, I'm, I tend to be a goal-oriented guy, and there's a lot of goals. Um, I, there's a lot of driven people and a lot of things that have had to happen for us to get to where we are now, and those are good things. But this summer, um, I really feel like it's important for us to, in some ways, take the foot off the gas and focus on fulfilling and being the kind of church that we believe God is calling us to be, to be a church that savors God's grace and builds God's community and joins God in his mission. And so this summer, uh, in the hot months of San Antonio and in the coming weeks, we really want to focus together on loving one another, on loving one another well through community, on getting involved in missional community groups and hanging out after church and just getting into each other's lives. And we want to focus on inviting Inviting our friends into life with God as it's being expressed here at Christ Church. And that's it. I'm not setting any big numbers goals. I'm not going to try to drive you too hard. I want us to simply be the church. Be the church together. Not for our own sakes, not to rest on our laurels, but to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus in what he has called us to do as the gathering of his people, as the church. To love one another and to love the world for his sake. So given that, I thought it would be appropriate for us to spend a few months thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a church that walks in his footsteps, so to speak. And so tonight we begin this new series called Following Jesus by looking at Matthew chapter 4, the text that was just read for you. So let me begin begin by this. Um, Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice to have a voice telling you what you need to do, when you need to do it, anytime you ask for it. A, a voice maybe that just pierces through the skies and says, turn left and not right. iPhones tend to do that, but it'd be helpful if the voice was clearer and we didn't have to look at it while driving, right? Um, one of my favorite movies was came out in 1989. I think you should be... To be an American citizen, you should be required to see this movie, in my opinion. It's called Field of Dreams by Kevin Costner. Great movie that I force my entire family to watch around baseball season every year when things are getting started. And Kevin Costner stars in Field of Dreams. And in this movie, he plays a farmer in the middle of Iowa. And in the first scene of the movie, he's walking through the tall cornfields in Iowa with his hands extended, feeling the stalks of corn as he passes by with his big farmhouse in the distance and his family swinging on the swing set in the porch of their house, and suddenly he hears a voice piercing through the skies that says, anybody know? All right, good. I knew my audience. If you build it, he will come. And he kind of stops. What in the world was that? And he continues to walk. And then he hears the voice again. If you build it, he will come. You know, the whole movie progresses 
as this voice speaks to Kevin Costner and tells his character what to do, the, the narrative arc of the story goes as the voice goes. Wouldn't it be great to hear a voice like that? You know, all of us in some ways are following certain voices. You might not, I hope you're not hearing them in your head. Maybe you are. That's a problem for another sermon. But we're all in some ways following voices. Um, The voices may be harmful rather than helpful. The voices may be confusing rather than clear. But there are certain things, certain voices, certain ways of viewing reality that undoubtedly guide us. Jesus, here in this text, speaks. He speaks words very clearly to his people and calls them to follow him. And the beautiful thing about the Christian gospel is that it says to us that Jesus, in his speaking, seeks to reshape us and to mold us and to form us and to change and grow us for our own good as we journey through life together. But what does that look like? What indeed does it mean for us now in this day and age to follow the voice of Jesus? What does it look like to be his disciples? That's what Matthew, I think, is getting at here when he begins telling us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This text really is a summary of what Jesus did during the three years of his earthly ministry. And uh, the text tells us what's going to come in more detail in the coming chapters of Matthew's gospel. In many ways, these verses that were read for us are an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in chapter 5, verse 1, probably the most famous sermon that was ever preached. Here, Matthew is setting the stage, so to speak, and telling us what Jesus was all about in his earthly ministry. And what I want to show you, the main point, the big idea that I want you to get, if you're going to get anything, is this. Following Jesus is going to cost you, but it's also going to change you. Okay? Following Jesus is going to cost you, but it's also going to change you. Three things from the passage tonight hopefully flowing from that main point that I think God has for us. First, following Jesus involves repentance. Second, following Jesus involves discipleship. And third, following Jesus involves shalom. Repentance, discipleship, shalom. First, following Jesus involves repentance. Look in verse 12. Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew into Galilee and left Nazareth and went and lived in Capernaum. And then down in verse 17, we see him open up his ministry by preaching. And the first word out of his mouth in his public ministry is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Following Jesus involves repentance. Now, that is a word that has fallen on hard times. Most people in our culture today think when they hear the word repentance that that functionally basically means that I'm going to have to stop doing everything in my life that I enjoy and that brings me pleasure and start doing things that really I don't like to do at all and really you're just going to be a waste of my time. People tend to view repentance as as merely stopping certain things and starting others. Now, repentance certainly does involve ceasing certain behaviors and starting other behaviors, but it's much, much more than that through the pages of the Scripture. Repentance, in Jesus' view, and what he's calling people to here who are following him, is, is a turnaround in the trajectory of your lives. It is a, a change of your entire life story. 
And I think that we can see that that's the case even in the geographical place where Jesus utters these first words. If you'll look at the passage again, you'll notice Matthew goes to great lengths here to tell us where Jesus was when he said, repent, for the very first time. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 9 and says that Jesus is in Capernaum in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then he quotes from Isaiah saying, this is the place where the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the original 12 tribes of Israel. And very early on in the story of Israel, these two tribes rebelled. And by the time Matthew was writing, these tribes are tribes that really aren't worshiping Yahweh at all in the way that the Jews of that day would have wanted to. They aren't going to the temple. They're not being faithful to God's law. They're religious syncretists. They're a little bit Roman, a little bit Greek, and a little bit Jewish. The bottom line is Jesus begins ministering in outsider territory. Jesus begins calling people to repentance in a place of darkness. Jesus first brings the kingdom in a place where you would least expect it to first come. That's significant, I think. And I think it teaches us something about repentance. Repentance comes. The call to change comes. Jesus' voice speaking and asking you to turn your life around and face him oftentimes will come to you when you are furthest away from him. It will oftentimes come to you when you least expect it. In 2009, I uh, had the opportunity to take a mission trip to Athens, Greece. And um, largely what we did during this trip was spend time with the massive refugee population. Over half a million refugees, international refugees in the city of Athens uh, coming from all over the world. And I happened to meet one young man who was about 19 years old at the time I met him whose name was Solomon. He was an Afghani man who had lost his family and his home in the Afghan bombings and in the war um, and had somehow, I'm not sure how, made it to Greece. He had made it to Greece completely broke, completely lost, completely hopeless, with not a single penny to his name and nothing to own except the clothes that were on his back, which were themselves in tatters. He just happened in God's providence to come into this particular mission of the many places that refugees can go for help in Athens. And there he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the Holy Spirit worked on his heart, he repented of his sin and placed his trust in Jesus, and his life was completely changed. And as I spoke to him, this was still a new thing in his life. And one of the things that he repeatedly told me is this, I never thought I was in a place where God could reach me. You know, I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus calls people to transformation. Jesus calls people to change when those people are least expecting it. Following Jesus involves repentance. Second, following Jesus involves discipleship. Look in the text with me, verse 18. Sometime after Jesus first began preaching, we're not sure how long, but he's in the same area. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he comes upon these four young men, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, and he says something very simple and yet very difficult to them. Follow me. And what do you see in the passage here? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then in verse 20, we read, immediately 
Peter and Andrew follow him. And then in verse 22, immediately James and John follow him. They leave to become disciples of Jesus. Following Jesus involves, at least in part, discipleship. Discipleship is obeying the commands and following the pattern of the master. And I want to show you real quickly two things that I think are important for us to get about the process of discipleship. First, notice in the passage that discipleship is personal. Look at what Jesus says again in verse 19. We would probably initially look over this, but I want you to think about it. He says, follow me. Personal pronoun. He does not say, follow my commandments. He does not say, follow my ideals. He does not say, follow my law. He says, follow me. Jesus leads here, you see, with relationship. He leads here with personal. The process of the Christian life is fundamentally the process of relating to God. And that is something that is unique among the world religions with Christianity. You see, most religions and ways of living say that the way to live is to follow some set of principles, some set of guidelines or rules that are in many ways abstractions or ideals. Now, Christianity certainly has guidelines and rules. Don't misunderstand me. But fundamentally, Christianity is about a relationship with a person. And I think that that's very encouraging as a Christian because when things begin to start going south in your life, which will undoubtedly happen at some point, you can't just turn to an abstract concept or a set of ideals and say, please help me. But you can do that in the Christian story with a personal God. Discipleship is personal, you see. It's involved fundamentally with a relationship. I want you to see secondly here that discipleship is costly. Discipleship is personal. Discipleship is great. Discipleship is a great thing to be done, but it is also costly. Notice again what happens with these young fishermen. They immediately, verse 20, left their nets and followed him. Everything that they had ever known, their source of income, their vocational calling, the place where they grew up, done, cut off, and they're gone. And then down in James and John's story, they don't just leave their fishing business and the fishing industry. They don't just leave their hometown, but they even leave their family, their own dad. I love the mental image of Zebedee sitting there with all those nets in the boat by himself. What am I going to do with these nets, you know? James and John immediately leave everything to follow Jesus. And the idea, I think, is that discipleship is many things, but one thing it undoubtedly is, is costly. You see, Jesus requires your willingness to reorient your life around him. Jesus demands, in fact, that you place him at the top of your priority list. And Jesus isn't necessarily going to ask that you give up everything else for his sake, but he does necessarily ask that you be willing to give up everything else for his sake. You see, following Jesus is costly. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. Now, you might be here thinking, that's not a very good sales pitch, Luke. Um, No thanks. Why would I want to pay that kind of cost? Well, it is a cost that you must count. But let me just say briefly that it is a cost that is well worth your payment. And here's why. 
you follow a God who will never ask you to do for him what he has not already done for you. You see, you only follow Jesus because Jesus first followed after you. Jesus was willing to become a man and suffer and die to chase you down. And because you believe that that is the case, you can now be willing to lay down some of the important things in your life and follow after him. You see, only when you understand the power and the effect of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us in pursuing us first, will you see how worth it it is to pursue him with everything that you have. And you will never follow after him unless you first understand the links to which he has pursued you. You see, following Jesus is worth it because Jesus was willing first to follow you even to being buried and dead before he was raised again from the dead. And who would not want to follow a king like that? Following Jesus involves repentance. It involves discipleship. Last thing, following Jesus involves shalom. Verses 23 through 25. That word shalom is not in this passage. That's a very beautiful, important Hebrew word that's used very frequently in the Old Testament that's usually translated as peace. But I think it means something more than just peace. The word generally refers to to the mending of that which is broken, to, to the making whole again of what has been shattered. And I think what Matthew is pointing out for us here is that when we decide to follow after Jesus as our king and live in relationship with him and his community, we don't just cost ourselves something, but we also see change taking place, not just in our lives, but in the life of the culture around us. Look at, look at what happens here. Jesus goes throughout all of Galilee with these men, teaching, there's a word component, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and there's also a deed component, healing every disease, taking care of every affliction. All the sick are coming to him, those who have pains, those who are demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and they're being healed. Their story is being changed. Their lives are being altered. Listen, when you are following Jesus, when we are following Jesus as a community, we see miraculous change happen. That is what Christian discipleship involves. It involves God's kingdom coming and restoring shalom, restoring wholeness to this messed up, broken, and dark world. When you follow after Jesus, Jesus is so gracious to not just change your life and bring you a new peace, but to involve you in the changing of this entire universe, in the renewal of all things. That is fundamentally what it is about to be a Jesus follower, to be a disciple, to be involved with his people. Yes, it involves repentance. Yes, it involves discipleship, which is costly. But yes, it involves something that cannot be matched by any other experience. It involves change. It involves hearing a message that frees you from guilt and shame. It involves being involved in a ministry that enables you to undo the oppression and the poverty and the brokenness of the world all around us. Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want 
to see the kingdom come. I long for that in my life because I know how deeply broken I am. And I long for that for this church. And I long for that for this city. And here we see that God promises to do it. We don't bring the kingdom. He brings the kingdom and involves us by his grace in this great epic changing kingdom coming event known as Christianity. May Christ Church be a place where we are a people of repentance, a people of discipleship, and a people who are experiencing and extending the shalom of the kingdom of God. Let's pray.